Queers Did That, a queer history podcast. I'm your host, Amanda. Hi, Amanda. I'm Katie. Hi, Katie. How are you today? I'm okay. I'm a little bit tired. Because of the tornado on Sunday night? Oh, yeah. That was, well, we didn't get a tornado. We just got a warning. <laughs> well, it was, I was woken up at 3.30 in the morning, so I'm going to count it as a tornado. And you're like, no, it's fine. A tornado warning is the lesser dangerous one. A tornado wash is what you got to be afraid of. Fun fact. <laughs> I'm not a meteorologist. <laughs> so I was wrong. Warning's worse than watch. I don't know. Thankfully, all that happened was our <laughs> our outdoor umbre- umbrella like fell down. That's it. Yes, my, my plants were saved, which was nice. Yes. So... Today we're going to talk about James Baldwin. Is he related to Alec? He is not one of the famous Baldwin brothers. Gotcha. So none of those. Okay. Anything else? Any other tries? Uh, no, I only know that one snippet that you like sent to me. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's all I know. Gotcha. Well, he's one of those, you know, he was a writer and, you know, author, playwright and did so much stuff it's he's one of those people a lot of times when we're doing this podcast it's feast or famine we have hardly any information about the person we want to talk about or we have such a large amount of information that is it's hard to boil it down to 25 minutes mm-hmm. because and he's definitely one of those people because he 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 did a lot of stuff so like any other episode, we're definitely not covering everything in depth because it probably would be over like two hours long <laughs> and no one wants to hear us talk about that too too long. So, um, And also, I just generally encourage people to go and see out their own research so they find out more information because obviously we're not covering everything in 25 minutes. Right. Because it's a person's life. Wait, you can't boil down an entire person's existence into 20 minutes? I cannot. Oh, okay. I do not have that talent. Gotcha. Do you have that talent? I do not. Okay, well, there we go. (laughs) Neither of us can do it, so we're not going to do it. Great. Cool. So, James Arthur Baldwin was born on August 2nd, 1924. His mother, Emma Burtis-Jones, left his biological father because of drug abuse and remarried a Baptist preacher, David Baldwin, who she had eight children with. The last child of which he had, he died on that day. Oh. Stepfather died on that day. Ah. So, and James had a rocky relationship with his stepfather, kind of felt differently, you know, treated a little bit differently, you know, grew up poor. Um, so a lot of times he, Baldwin spent, because of, you know, him not getting along with his stepfather, and, you know, he wrote in essays, he referred to his stepfather as his father, but that he treated him more harshly than his other children. So he spent a lot of time in, in libraries, and by his adolescence, he, you know, developed his passion for writing, you know, and very much wrote about the world around him. He, you know, obviously, as a young black man during that time and any time, but he, you know, was a victim of police harassment. And, you know, he used that in his essay, Notes of a Native Son. And he 
you know, was seen as gifted, and in 1937, when he was 13, he wrote his first article, Harlem Then and Now, which was published in the school magazine, the Douglas Pilot. So he was 13 when he published his first article. Mm -hmm, mm So, yeah, every, you know, any, like, racial harassment by police or other people, he documented in many essays. The funeral was Baldwin's 19th birthday, of his stepfather, and the day of the Harlem riot of 1943, which he wrote about in the beginning of his essay, Notes of a Native Son. Um, despite their strained relationship, Baldwin initially wanted to follow his stepfather's footsteps and wanted, you know, to become like a minister. He served as a youth minister in the Harlem Pentecostal Church from 14 to 16, but, you know, obviously that didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> um... Baldwin expressed, talked about his obstacles growing up in Harlem, especially education. You know, he was like, quote, I knew I was black, of course, but I also knew I was smart. I didn't know how I would use my mind or even if I could, but that was the only thing I had to use. So when Baldwin was 15, him and his high school running buddy skipped school and in Greenwich Village met Beaufort Delaney, a painter. They gave Baldwin, oh, his friend gave Baldwin Delaney's address and suggested paying him a visit. And the painter became a mentor to Baldwin. And, you know, through that mentorship, he believed a black person could be an artist. Mm. Much of his life, you know, he lived a writer life. It was odd jobs while he wrote short stories and essays. In 1944, he befriended, but he also, like, you know, Notes of a Day of Sun became very popular. It was 1955. And my favorite thing I've ever found about one of the people we've talked about was a sentence. He befriended the actor Marlon Brando in 1944, and the two were roommates for a time. <laughs> they remained friends for more than 20 years. Bros mean bros. There's like, we don't know for certain. I'm not putting a sexuality a label on anyone, but. So you're saying Brando had some tendencies? Yeah, they weren't just roommates. I mean, I don't know that for certain, but like, <laughs> I'm going to say it with more certainty probably than I should, but <laughs> I just think it's funny, even like in the article about a gay man, like it's still kind of like, like cleaned up. Yeah. Nicely. Yeah. I was just amused by it. That's fine. So like in his teenage years is when he realized he was gay and in 1948 in New Jersey, Mm-hmm. He walked into a restaurant where he knew he'd be denied service because of segregation and racial injustice and all that terrible stuff. So a waitress explained to him that he wouldn't be served there, and he threw a glass of water at her, and yeah, and shattered a mirror behind the bar. So basically, he was like, "I'm done with this shit." And in the age of 24, he moved to Paris. He was like, "I'm not." I'm not dealing with y'all anymore. <laughs> y'all can handle yourselves. He wanted to distance himself from American prejudice and seeing himself as, and his writing outside the African-American context. Baldwin did not want to be read as, quote, merely a Negro or even merely a Negro writer. He wanted to come to terms with his, you know, sexuality and escape the hopelessness he was feeling as a young African-American man in New York in the 40s. So Baldwin settled in St. Paul de Vence, 
I don't speak French, <laughs> <laughs> which is in the south of France. Most of his, like, his leader, like, he settled. Like, he was in France and then went back to the United States okay. and then went back to Villa. So he moved to Paris in 1948, mm. and his friend, the painter Delaunay, made Delaunay's home in St. Paul de Vence, his uh, Baldwin's second home. Mm-hmm. And basically, oh, Delaunay painted several several portraits of Baldwin, Inter-Nall, that is how he was referred to, mm. uh, befriended Baldwin during the time. You know, you had, you know, very famous, like, house guests the whole time. You know, it was Harry Belafonte, Sidney Portier, Nina Simone, mm. Miles Davis, Ray Charles, Josephine Baker. So, you know, there was a, he was hanging out with a lot of cool people in France with, you know, art community and stuff. Uh-huh. And, you know, but that's a lot of where his work was created. Yeah, so much of his work outside of the United States was in Britain in St. Paul de Vaughan. He spent a lot of time answering a huge amount of mail he received around the world. And, you know, he wrote his last works there as well. Mm. But, um... In 1954, he received a Guggenheim Fellowship. Guggenheim? Guggenheim. Yeah, words are hard. <laughs> <clears throat> so he was able to like spend more time writing. And he published his next novel, Giovanni's Room, the 1955, which told the story of an American living in Paris. And it, was, it broke a lot of ground because it, it's complex de- depiction of homosexuality which obviously was not something super prevalent in american leisure because you also had like this is like height of like mccarthyism Mm, right and censorship um amongst other things so yeah that it was obviously a very (laughs) taboo subject um so it kind of like broke the mold in that way he you know he wrote but he wrote like several stories that you know that had you know gay context. Um, you know, nineteen seventy eight, he wrote just above my head. He also explored interracial relationships um, in many other of his books as well. And you know, he was very and one of the things that was nice and very different, I think, he was very open about his homosexuality. He was very open about his identity. And someone asked, a writer in 1969 asked him if being gay was an aberration, which is like, why would you, I know the same shit happens now, but like, why would you, that's stupid, don't do that. Right. Um, He said, quote, if you fall in love with a boy, then you fall in love with a boy. So. (laughs) Nice. Succinct. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I'm just not going to get on that soapbox, it's fine. In 1957, he came back to the United States mm-hmm. while civil rights legislation started to be debated in Congress. So that's why he came back. He was moved by the girl Dorothy Counts, who was braving mobs basically to desegregate schools in Charlotte, North Carolina. So, you know, he published essays about it, one in Harper's Magazine and the other in the Partisan Review. He reviewed, he was in many, like, New Yorker, New York Times, 
short essays in the progressive he wrote a lot about the civil rights movement as well okay he aligned himself with the ideas of congress of racial equality core which we've talked about in other episodes and the student nonviolent coordinating committee and you know core gave him an opportunity to travel across the american south and he was able to lecture on his views about racial inequality through that. You know, he, and it gave him a unique perspective of the racial inequality that happened, that the difference between the nuances that happened in the North versus that happened in the South. In 1963, he also conducted another lecture tour for CORE in the South. He lectured students, white liberals, and basically anyone else about, you know, racial ideology because, you know, it's important to talk about. And, you know, positioning himself kind of between the, like, Malcolm X and the nonviolence of Martin Luther King mm-hmm. kind of placed himself there. And he was also a big fan of socialism and was hoping that would... Uh, become prevalent in the United States, <laughs> which you know, so say we all. But like, since he's been, he was doing all these tours and like garnering more attention, like nationally, you you know, in 1963, you had mainstream press recognizing his analysis of you know racism, and Time featured him on a cover in May of 1963. Oh, that's cool. He also, he sent cables to Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy. Cables? Oh, like, um, telegrams? Not telegrams. Oh, like the, oh, uh, like, you're talking about, like, a, a telegram. Tele- yeah, it's, like, one of those old-timey communications. Oh. Yeah, because it was the 60s. Couldn't send him a letter? I think it was. It was like a faster, like, more, more pointed letter. I don't, I don't know. Okay. I don't know what a cable is. It's a form of communication that existed in the 60s. Okay. I'm sure our parents who are listening to this are probably groaning because we <laughs> <laughs> we're like, what are cables? <laughs> What's a VHS? We do know what VHS is. <laughs> I just want to clarify. So he sent a message to then Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy during the Birmingham, Alabama crisis. And Baldwin, like, outwardly blamed the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover and a a couple other senators and also President Kennedy for failing to use, quote, the great prestige of his office as the moral forum, which it can be. Good thing we all have to worry about that right now. (laughs) So... Attorney General Kennedy invited Baldwin to meet him over breakfast, and, you know, they, you know, beca- like, that's when they started their communication about that. So, and, you know, because of his outward criticism of the FBI and J. Hoover, <laughs> his file, his FBI file contains, guess how many pages of documents? <sighs> okay. I don't know how much, like, like, I don't, I don't, I'm going to say 500. 
1,884 oh pages of documents collected from 1960 until the early 1970s, oh. most of which was not necessarily legal. After, you know, talking with Kenny a bunch of times, he met with Baldwin and Kenny's Manhattan apartment with a bunch of other people and discussed. You had the psychologist who played a key role in Brown versus the Board of Education. You had Harry Bel- Belafonte. Um, Lorraine Hansberry, and different like activists from civil rights organizations. A lot of the attendees left the, the meeting feeling devastated, but the meeting was kind of helpful in them being able to voice their concerns of the civil rights movement and you know, kind of switch the narrative of the civil rights issue not just being a political issue, but also being a moral issue. Right. He also was at the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom in 1963, along with Sidney Poitier and Marlon Brando. <laughs> Longtime friends. I mean, that's like, I mean, obviously James Baldwin is like incredible into itself, but like, you're like, oh, here are my friends, Marlon Brando and Sidney Poitier. <laughs> Sweet. My pals. Yeah. Just hang out. Yeah. I just think, I mean, I think that's just like. Yeah. If you measure someone by their friends, like, that's a very interesting life that he had. Well, like, if I was just a regular Joe Schmo in, like, the 60s, would I know who James Baldwin is? Yes. Oh, okay. Because he wrote, like, enough throughout different publications and not just books. Like, it was articles. And basically, if you read a newspaper or read a book... Mm-hmm. You probably would have heard of James Baldwin at that point. Gotcha. You know, in 1970, he moved back to St. Paul Yvonne. And on December 1st, 1987, Baldwin died from stomach cancer. Oh. And he was buried in New York City. Um, during that time, Nall, that painter, took care of Baldwin. They had been friends since the early 70s. Nall recalled talking to Baldwin about racism and in one conversation said, quote, through your books you liberated me from my guilt about being so bigoted coming from Alabama and because of my homosexuality. And Baldwin said, quote, no, you liberated me in revealing this to me. Hmm. I mean, there's, there's so many quotes. There's so many things that he did. There's so much he wrote, like, you could... You could have, like, a whole podcast on Notes of a Native Son. Right. It's, you know, they're amazing, you know, works of art. But I think one of the quotes that definitely stuck stood out to me was that no white critic can judge my work. I'd be a fool if I depended upon that judgment. Because, you know, I'm, sh- you know, we're looking na- now. I mean, obviously, I don't have reviews from, you know, 1955. <laughs> But I'm not imagining that, you know, white reviewers in 1955 <laughs> were always fair yeah. and balanced. Yeah. I would imagine that's not, you know. So basically, James Baldwin kind of did his own thing. And he wrote a lot about his life and what he saw and how he felt and kind of pushed those boundaries and, you know, was able to live most of his life openly and happily as a gay black man. Huh. Did he, like, ever have any, like, I mean, like, any long-term relationships or anything? 
they don't have anything specific. I don't necessarily think that's indicative yeah. of whether he had you know, relationships. I think at the same time, like, you're open with who you are, but you also... Yeah, so, like, they don't... There's not really anything, like, specifically, like, talked about. But, I mean, that doesn't mean he he didn't. Yeah, well, he was roommates with Marlon Brando. Yes. What's the equivalent of gal pals? That's a good question. What is the equivalent of gal pals? I don't know. Because there's gals being pals. Bros being bros. Just dudes being bros. <laughs> It's better when it rhymes. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know either. <laughs> but, you know, he he influenced so much and, like, so much writing afterwards, like Toni Morrison and, you know, Maya Angelou. And there was so much that, you know, was spurred by his work. And it's, you know... I mean, it's incredible how much he was able to write and how amazing all of it is. It's one of those things where you're like, damn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wish I was half of the writer, you know? It's like he just was able to like, express his truth like so well in a way that obviously wasn't seen as, you know, a gay black writer before that time. So it was his main format, norm- like, like essays? like Essays and books. Because the notable i mean they're all notable but you have notes of a native son giovanni's room and go tell on the mountain were the main like books but he wrote a bunch of articles about the civil rights movement and different essays about you know growing up so it's just kind of like almost countless yeah so everything i guess is the answer poems I don't think poems. You know, in 1987, Kevin Brown, a faux journalist from Baltimore, founded the National James Baldwin Literary Society, which organized free public events celebrating Baldwin's life and legacy. You have... 1992, you have a Hampshire College established a James Baldwin scholarship program who taught at Hampshire College. Baldwin taught at Hampshire College in the early 1980s. Hmm. In 2005, the U.S. Postal Service created a first-class postage stamp dedicated to Baldwin. Oh. 2012, he was inducted into the Legacy Walk, an outdoor public display that celebrates LGBT history and people. Where's that? That is Chicago. Oh, I think, yes. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Here are all the works that Wikipedia least lists, and there's a lot. So... Go Tell on the Mountain, semi-autobiographical novel. The Amen Corner, which is a play. Notes of a Native Son, which is essays. Giovanni's Room, which is a novel. Nobody Knows My Name, More Notes on a Native Son, essays. Another Country, novel. Talk to the Teachers, 19, uh, essay. And this, those alone, that was 10 years. He wrote all that in 10 years. <laughs> I mean, and that's just, like, the stuff that's, like, published, right? Like, yeah. And he wrote the novel, If Beale Street Could Talk, which I can't believe I just didn't think about the, no- the Oscar-nominated movie that 
from last year and you know they kind of brought that to life which was i really don't remember that yeah they did it didn't get as much press as it should but apparently it was really good oh i don't watch movies so i didn't obviously i didn't see it but only because i'm terrible at watching movies oh he did write poems oh so there you go more poems i just i just feel like all of the all of the like queer writers it's like they they have to write poems. That's Look, just... I mean, it's part of the handbook. You have to like socialism, and you have to write poems. <laughs> it's part of being gay. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> you know, more or less, it's fine. <laughs> but, I mean, like, they, you know, he also, besides writers, he also, like, influenced, like, painters. There's like, French painters. Philip... The Rom, which I, I know I'm saying wrong because I can't speak French. <laughs> Maya Angelou called Baldwin her friend and brother and credited him for setting the stage of her 1969 autobiography, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. Mm, so that's she, cool. Yeah, she specifically credits him for that. So you have all this iconic work wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for James Baldwin. He kind of set in motion a lot of different like paintings and movies and plays and books and music and really just like any like everything and like that's I think this is like the, the true purpose of wanting to be an artist is just to like obviously you want to obviously you want to you know be able to speak your truth and tell your story and do all of that but I think also just like the idea of having being so good at what you do to be able to be so influential on so many other people who are creative and I just think that's really awesome and I think we don't think at least sometimes like I don't think especially with like art and books like I'm really bad at placing people in certain periods of time like they're all before our time right so you know seeing like directly how like one book and one author influences a whole being able to see that linear influence, I think, is really interesting because it's not something I actively thought about before because it's like, oh, they're all, like, old books before I was born. Right. So, but the fact that you have certain people, you have certain stories that inspire so many other people and so many other stories, and that's really cool. Had you heard of James Baldwin? Like, did you know who he was before researching all this? Yes, I mean, I obviously didn't know, like, specifics, but I knew who James Baldwin was. Oh. Do you th- is he, like, taught in uh, schools? I don't think, I mean, well, I, I, my obvious experience, my, I went to Catholic school, so my experience is skewed, so I don't want to speak for the rest of it, but right. it definitely wasn't in my curriculum, and this is the same time as... Like relatively, of course, you have Great Gatsby and Catcher the Rye, and it's like, I'm sorry, why didn't we read? Well, I know why we didn't read Giovanni through, but why we didn't read like Notes of the Sun versus like Catcher in the Rye? Like one's considered undisputed for some people, American classic, mm-hmm. and you have someone who created all this work and all this writing, and he's not part of the literary classic american canon which is like a whole nother <laughs> could be a whole again a whole nother podcast basically about how 
a lot of what's considered like classics and what's considered like quintessential reading right is whiny white dudes and not really much else yes yeah, go through. Go through. Going, I see you going through the list in your head of yeah. books you had to read in school. Yep. How many of them were whiny white dudes? I mean, the main one that sticks out is Catcher in the Rye. Yeah, that's always that's the big one. Freaking hated that book. Yeah. Yeah, I was just wondering because it seems like you know, if he had, he was like such a huge influence, it would have been would have been smart to to study his works, but. Eh. What do I know? Yeah, well, I mean, you also had, you also have, he inspired a lot of other black creative people yeah. who are also not talked about in history in schools. And again, I went to a Catholic school. We're not going to be talking about anyone who's gay in any capacity, like educationally wise. Right. I'm sure in some cur- he's in some curriculums. I'm, you know, obviously I don't know all the curriculums. I'm not a curriculum expert, Kate. Oh, okay. Yeah, but I don't, I don't know anyone who had to read any of those books. But and I know a lot of people who had to read Catcher in the Rye. Yeah. I could probably like write an essay by about how much I hate that book. <laughs> But that's, again, another story. <laughs> that was, you know, James Baldwin. He was a writer. He was creative. He was friends with a lot of cool people. He wrote about stuff that was super important. He talked to Robert F. Kennedy about shit and has a George R. R. Martin novel about him in FBI records. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that's I think that's a good life. And it probably took them less time to compile all those records than it does for. Well, it was ten George years, R. R. so Martin. yes. Yeah, no. It was in ten years, so ten yeah, years. that was faster than George R. R. Martin. Yeah, yeah. So. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Shit all off literary things today. Yeah. It's... Oh, sorry. Nah, I think it's cool. Cool. It's just our opinions. Yes. Well, thanks for educating me about James Baldwin, a guy I probably should have heard of before. Yeah, no problem. I also learned a lot more, so I am also happy about that because I didn't know enough about him either. So that's our show. If you have any comments or questions, you can email us at queersdidthat at gmail.com or at queersdidthat on Twitter. You can also, if anyone has ideas about who we should cover or what topics we should cover or any historical moments we should cover, please also let us know. We have a list going, but, you know, obviously it's not, you know, I can't think of the word. Set in stone? Yeah, it's not set in stone. So you should also let us know what you want to hear about, too. So until next time, make a history and make history gay. Bye. Bye. Hello, and welcome to Queers Did That, a queer... Queer Christery!